Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. 2023 was the sixth highest, rainiest year on record for Connecticut. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. In July alone, more than 1,500 acres of Connecticut farmland flooded over, representing $21 million in lost sales revenue. Parts of the state flooded again earlier this month after a bout of heavy, unseasonable rainfall. We're about to hear from one farmer in South Glastonbury who's holding out hope for relief for the nearly half a million dollars in losses she logged from July's floods. Later in the hour, we'll get an update on some of the efforts to address systemic flooding and sewage problems in the north end of Hartford. Residents say even a light rainfall can re-trigger flooding in homes. Now, the state's Comptroller's office is overseeing a program aimed at giving those residents some relief. Comptroller Sean Scallon will join us, along with Sharon Lewis. She's the executive director of the CT Coalition for Environmental Justice. Her north and home has been uninhabitable for over a year due to flooding and sewage in her basement and first floor. First, joining us now for an update on how farms in the state are faring is Brian Herbert. He's a commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. <coughs> Thanks so much, Commissioner, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me and for spending time on this important subject. And also with us is Christine Bassett. She's the owner and operator for the Killam and Bassett Farmstead in South Glastonbury. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Chris, I want to start with you uh, with a few questions. You know, we'll look back to July in just a quick moment, but I know that some farms have reported losses from flooding just this winter. Uh, we have WTNH, who spoke with uh, Gazy Brothers Farm in Oxford earlier this month, and they said they're trying to clear 35 acres of tomato and squash fields. So I want to ask, how are you all doing in South Glastonbury? Um, it's almost the status quo right now for the norm. Um, the rain has not had that much of an impact with us right now because of the time of year. So we're not um, devastated because we were able to clean up from what we had in July. And can you sort of take us back to the summer and tell us what happened in July and what were you hoping for in terms of the emergency funding for those damages? Um, middle of July, we had the Connecticut River came up quite a bit. Um, I think it was over 20 feet. And in that uh, event, we had 45 acres of our 95 acres flood. And we were just starting to pick and it was everything from beets to um, lettuces to um, radishes, like you name it. We were just on the cusp of starting our, our main harvest for the season. So um, it ended up 
totally the minute that the water touched everything, it was um, a sunk deal, no pun intended, but because um, the water's contaminated. So it could have receded um, five hours from then, but it, it stayed up for quite a bit, which made it very difficult to get back in there and, and uh, plow and try to get some, some more um, crops planted. So that was not um, the best case scenario. And we had to wait two weeks to get the okay from our NAP insurance, which is a, a federally funded insurance because they have to go in and approve it, see the crops, make sure that they're valid and and then turn around and give us the okay. But then you have the risk of disease. We actually about 50 feet away had tomato plants, um, probably about 4,000 tomato plants that hadn't been touched. And we were just itching to get in there to get rid of all that and try to help dry it out so that the bugs and the fungus and mold wouldn't go over to the, the tomato plants, which didn't happen. So um, we got paid like one one hundredth of what the acreage was worth. And we're still waiting for supposed more funding that's supposed to come from that program. But we have to get our pick logs in, which we're working in, on now. And um, that's all the relief we've seen so far. And so the program it's, you're talking about, it's the federal non-insured crop disaster assistance program that's overseen by the United States Department of Agriculture, correct? Yes. And those crops are uninsurable by any other means. And so you know, while you're still waiting and, and having been able to sort of get back to it, what does the process of unflooding un- un- your farmland look like? You know, what was it like going back into it? Uh, we... Uh, it wasn't pretty, I can tell you that. And um, <clears throat> when we went back in, it was debris that came down. You got to think that flooding is all the way up north. So everything that could come down um, did come down. Um, it's not only limbs and trees, but man-made items as well. Um, there was part of a shack that was on our property. The roadways to get into our fields needed to be um, redone. So luckily they're um, dirt. So we, we had a load of process come in, but um, had to forego that cost as well. So it, it took probably a, a little over two to three weeks to get back in and get the fields dried out enough. We went over when we could with the harrow and the plow to help aerate it to get it dried out quicker. But we certainly had to wait until, you know, everything dried out enough so we wouldn't get stuck because it was there for a while. And so while this process is going, Chris, you know, what would you like to see done in terms of the support system, whether it's from the federal level or from the state level? Um, we would have loved to have seen, while, while farmers are very modest and not looking for a handout, a hand up is what the, the theme has been through all this to help preserve and um, continue the farms that are out there. I know some farmers um, are not going to be um, planting almost a third of the crops that they did before because they had to borrow so much money. They don't have the money to invest again millions of dollars to make sure because there are some big farms out there that produce um, one of them's uh, green beans. And that got that farmer is not going to be, he already told us that don't plan on buying beans from us if you need any this year because I'm not, I'm not going to do the scale that I did before because he had to borrow again. And for all of us, it's just borrowing on top of borrowing on top of borrowing. And so it would it would be great if there was loan forgiveness at some level, not all of it, but just a portion, um, even just some type of 
grant or um, or money that emergency funding that could be given out to all farmers on you know depending on the relativity of the level of loss that they had because we're 95 acres <clears throat> the other farmer I was talking about over 300 so you're talking about it's a percentage of loss that there has to be looked at and commissioner I want to bring you here and bring you in here Chris mm-hmm. just described you know what a large scale of devastating loss that she's experienced and of course not just her farm but many others so how has her experience compared to other farmers in the state that you're hearing from you know what are what are you hearing from your conversations yeah, and uh, thank you, Chris, for taking time to share your story with people. I think it's really important, especially in the assault season, um, where people may not be thinking about what's going on uh, at Connecticut Farms, um, uh, about what happened and the impact. Um, her story is very similar to the stories that we've heard from other farmers, not only up and down the Connecticut River Valley, um, but if you think about the, um, the rain that we had nearly every weekend, um, that was a huge impact on our agritourism, on, on our uh, apple picking and on, uh, you know, corn mazes and pumpkin picking. Um, all of that water, as Chris said, you know, came from down up north, uh, washed all the way out to Long Island Sound, um, which means it also had an impact on our shellfish operations. Um, uh, when we reach a certain level of uh, rainfall, um, we have to close some conditionally approved areas um, to make sure that, uh, that the product is safe and healthy for human consumption. Um, so there was a, a lot of effects that, you know, not only the large flooding had, but the continuous rain had across Connecticut farms uh, over the, the entire course of 2023. And can you give us a sense of the damage from July? You know, we mentioned earlier that 1,500 acres mm-hmm. was an early figure from back during those times when farms had just started mm-hmm. to log their losses. You know, has that number grown? Um, we didn't see that that number grew. Um, the loss um, was was estimated at over $20 million um, at that point in time. Um, and I think that's probably a, about accurate. You know, um, Connecticut farmers are pretty resilient. As Chris said, you know, they were itching to get back into the field, um, replant, do what they could to salvage a crop for the year. Um, and some people actually had uh, their season a little bit extended because it was a little bit more of a milder, later start to winter. Um, so some of that probably was recuperated with a, with a later harvest, um, but it certainly did not make up for what was lost. Um, as, as we were talking before the, sh- the show began, you know, we're just wishing for a normal year this year. It doesn't have to be a great year, but just a normal year. And baby steps. Amen. <laughs> baby steps over there. And Chris, you know, I want to ask, how can our listeners better support you and other farmers in the state? You know, we've heard that the rainy summer and fall affected foot traffic at farmers markets, you know, the, the ripple effect, I think, is a lot wider than, than we think. So how can listeners help support you and other farmers in the state? Um, my best thing is to remember local, no matter where you are, um, farmers, the local shops you go to, because it wasn't just the farmers who were affected. Um, we went out with a uh, market meeting the other night and all the other vendors were affected as well due to how much rain we got over the summer, their sales were down as well. So shop small means a huge impact on the small businesses of the state. So if everyone could remember to instead of going to the big store, stop. And even if you're making five different trips, it would be wonderful if you could just make those five different trips. And it has a bigger impact on us as small farmers, small businesses to make that difference. 
You've been listening to Chris Bassett, who's the owner and operator for the Killam and Bassett Farmstead, as well as Brian Hurlbert, who's the commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. Coming up, we move to the north end of Hartford, where repairs to the city's aging flooding and sewage infrastructure are ongoing. We'll get an update on a program aimed at providing relief to residents. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard about how flash floods damaged farmland in the state last summer, but for years, the North End in Hartford has dealt with flooding and sewage issues, and residents say that can be re-triggered by a light rain. Connecticut Public Meteorologist Gary Archianis says it was the third wettest year on record for the Hartford area. Garrett also tells us that research shows that there are more high precipitation events in the Northeast with climate change, and this is expected to continue as the climate warms. He also says, unfortunately, this means more issues with flooded roads, basements, and rivers in the future. This also means that cities need to adapt in regards to runoff and drainage. A bit later, we'll get an update on efforts to repair the aging flooding and sewage system in Hartford's North End and on the Environmental Protection Agency's involvement. But first, the latest state budget included $170 million in funding for Hartford's sewage and flooding infrastructure, Five million is being distributed now as part of a relief program for affected home and business owners in the area. And with me today is Dave Altamari in studio. He's an investigative reporter for the Connecticut Mirror who has been reporting on this new program. Welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. And with us is also Sharon Lewis, who is the executive director for the CT Coalition for Environmental Justice. Her North End home has been uninhabitable for over a year due to flooding and sewage in her basement and first floor. Thank you, Sharon, for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Sharon, I want to start with you here. Last time you were on the show, which was about over a year ago, 
you were actually staying in a hotel because of the flooding and sewage that took over your basement and your first floor. Can you give us an update on what's happened since then? Nothing. <laughs> well, I did move out of the hotel after seven months. I moved into an apartment and uh, I'm hoping to get back into my house at some point. And when we last spoke, we also talked about your work on environmental justice, and you and, and others have been referring to this as an environmental justice issue. Can you remind our listeners, what do you mean by that? Well, certain people, uh, based upon their race and their income, um, are subjected to more environmental ills than others. Um, it's no secret that uh, the federal government has played a major role in determining where people of color live as a result of uh, segregation, redlining, and um, uh, uh, the lack of, um, of income and other means to segregate the races. Um, and the North End of Harvard especially, um, well, first of all, Connecticut is one of the oldest states in the union, and as such, it has some of the oldest housing stock. Uh, the north end of Hartford has uh, old housing stock that has antiquated uh, plumbing and sewage lines. In fact, they're called combined sewer lines, where the sewer and the uh, clean water, sanitary water lines are combined. Uh, that spells disaster in the event when the water level reaches a point where um, both sewage and water have to go through one pipe. And we know you've been really active as an advocate and at the head of this coalition. And unfortunately, that really collided with your own personal experience here. So I want to ask you, you know, how have you been doing? I have not been doing well. Um, to be honest with you, it's been extremely emotionally challenging. People need to understand when you say, when I say basement, it wasn't the typical basement items in my house. I was planning on moving and the deal fell through. So we took everything out of the U-Haul truck and put it in my house, but I couldn't maneuver in the house. So we put it in the basement temporarily. And then those boxes were family heirlooms, photos, my collection of antiques, irreplaceable things that are just um, unbelievably lost. And I'm just now realizing that this nightmare that I've been living is real and I have lost everything. And I mean, with, with what you just described, I don't know how that can't re you know, resonate with people. I think we all have items that would devastate us if, we, if we've lost them. You know, are you comfortable sharing more about some of these items? You know, why were they so important to you? And, and you know, what, what, what could be the next step for you to sort of help heal that loss? Well, I don't think I'll be able to heal this loss. Um, in the freezer was uh, my mother's DNA. She passed away in 2005. Mm -hmm. And um, the day of her funeral, I was handed a letter, an envelope. She'd written a letter to me. It was 35 pages long. I guess she wrote it during the years. And I could not get through it. In fact, I'd only gotten through 17 pages. And um, when I was packing up to move, I put things like her letter 
and photos and death certificates and other things in a box. And um, the box was in the basement. And my greatest regret was procrastinating and not reading that letter in its entirety. And I think in a moment here, we're going to be talking about a, a different kind of relief, I hope, for you. Um, we'll hear more from Connecticut Mirror investigative reporter Dave Altamari about the pilot relief program that we've talked about a little bit earlier. So Sharon, I want to ask you, you know, is this a program that you've applied to or do you plan on applying? Um, can you share some of your feelings about having to go through this process? Um, well, the answer is no, I have not applied. I will say that the folks who are administering the funds have been more than welcoming to me, but I'm afraid. My first attempt at applying for help resulted in humiliation and further traumatizing events. And I'm very much afraid of having to go through those emotions again. Um, applying signifies that what I've lost is real, and I'm trying to pretend that that's not true. Um, it evokes feelings of defeat and vulnerability that has infected me in ways I just cannot describe. I um, Seeking help has never been in my DNA. I've always been the one to give help. And in this case, I find myself paralyzed. And Dave- Especially since... I've had some people offer to help me, and um, they can't find anything on the application that applies to what I've lost. For example, I spent $28,000 staying in a hotel for seven months. Can't find a place to put that on the application. Can't find a place to put other relocation expenses. Can't find a place to put the pod that's on my front lawn where I tried to save some of the items. So I'm resisting because I just can't go through the humiliation again. When you mentioned that there's no space for for reimbursements, um, I'm afraid to ask, is there a place for heirlooms on the form at all? No, and I don't have receipts for anything. And Dave, I want to bring you in here. You've been following the conversation with Sharon and hearing her experience, you know, We'd we'll love to sort of bring you in to respond to her concerns and also where those concerns intersect with the Hartford Flood Compensation Program, which is the relief program that we've been talking about. Well, a couple of things from what she said. Um, not only are the, is the housing stock old, but so is the pipes underneath it. And all that whole area has had a history of flooding going back 25, 30 years. Um, and uh, it was interesting when they had a press conference last July to announce this program, the, the, one of the first things the governor said is if this had happened in Greenwich, it wouldn't have been taken care of. And so that goes to what Sharon was talking about in um, environmental justice. It's clear that this problem has been ignored for a long time. Um, the program in place right now, there's two. it's two-folded. There's $170 million, half of which the state is contributing, that has gone to MDC to do 13 projects in the area, mostly to try to um, separate the sewage and water 
um, situation that Sharon was referring to. And then there's this $5 million uh, fund that the legislature set up that the comptroller is overseeing that people can apply to. Um, and they've given out, I believe it's almost uh, $1.4 million so far of the $5 million. Um, there have been um, over 300 applications. Um, I would say to Sharon that she should contact the Blue Hills Civic Association. Uh, they've been very active in going door to door in, in the area, trying to help people fill out their applications, tell them what they need, what they can. There are ways to, to submit the application with help. I, I wouldn't be afraid to do so, um, especially uh, hearing her story. It's clear she's had significant loss from many floods. Um, ironically, a week after they had the press conference announcing this, there was a huge rainstorm in and, uh, you know, there was a couple inches of rain and people who were at the press conference from the neighborhood started calling me that their basements were flooded. Mm-hmm. So the programs was actually supposed to start January 1st. They got it underway uh, earlier than that, uh, a couple of months earlier than that. So it's, it's, it is definitely helping short term. Um, the long-term problem, I think, is still being, needs to be addressed uh, in the whole area, frankly, in the whole city. Um, and those projects, I believe most of the MDC projects are now underway. Um, not quite sure where they stand as far as when they're going to finish some of them, but uh, there is some longer-term relief on the way. So later on, we're going to be talking more about those repairs and also the more longer-term um, solutions to these issues. Right now, I want to bring in the Connecticut State Comptroller who is overseeing this process, and uh, uh, State Comptroller Sean Scallon joins us now to discuss. Uh, Comptroller, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. And can you respond to some of what we've heard so far about the relief program, you know, the Hartford Flood Compensation Program, which our, your office is overseeing? You know, when I hear Ms. Lewis talk about feeling humiliated and vulnerable, I think what she's speaking to is what I heard from so many people in Hartford and particularly the North End, which was that they felt ignored for decades. They felt ignored every time it rained and their house flooded and nobody cared. Um, And I, as the state comptroller, which is essentially the state's chief financial officer, never thought that I would be running this program, but my office does run programs like this. And we were really proud to take this on this summer and to get it going, as Dave just said, three months ahead of time. And the reason for that is because uh, our team worked really hard to get this relief out because people have been waiting for too long. And what we're doing right now is to give people a little bit of justice for the injustice that they have faced for a very long time. Well, and it sounds like there's a lot of fluidity during this process, you know, as you're getting applications out and getting applications back in. You know, are there plans to update some of the items in this form? You know, for example, you know, Sharon mentioned earlier that there's no there's no area to include uh, expenses for temporary accommodations or heirlooms, you know, personal effects. You know, are there plans to do any kind of update related to any of those things? Well, on the heirlooms um, and, and as Dave just said, um, I, I certainly would encourage Miss Lewis to apply, and I will personally help her, as can Blue Hills. Um, you do not need receipts. That's a common 
uh, thing we get a lot. People say, oh, I didn't apply because I don't have receipts. Um, we specifically structured this program knowing that people don't keep receipts always, and sometimes receipts are destroyed in the flood. Um, so we used professional adjusters um, to value items um, based on the work that they would do normally in another disaster program. Um, and, and so that's that. Um, when it comes to housing, um, you know, Ms. Lewis is right that we don't offer that right now, but this process has been something we've learned a lot from, and we've got about four and a half million dollars left in this fund. We're about a week away from the next General Assembly legislative session. And there are some tweaks that we hope the legislature will make to this program uh, that can change it so that it can be nimble and accommodating to some of the things we've heard about throughout the first three months of the application process. Sharon, I would love to bring you back here real quick to respond to what the comptroller has to say. Does it give you a bit more hope to, to go through with the application? Actually, no, but I just want to respond. Sure. Uh, first, first of all, 30 years, this issue has been going on for greater than 30 years. 30 years ago, the MDC installed a backflow valve in my basement where I had the first sewage overflow. Um, the northeast section of town has been notoriously flooded. Power Avenue, one of the main streets in the northeast that is perpendicular to Maine, uh, was so flooded that people hydroplaned every time they drove down it. I also want to make a comment that the part of the money, $171 million, was supposed to be used to replace the lateral lines uh, that people could not afford to replace. Those are the lines that we are responsible for from the street to the house. What I find to be so amazing is that my whole area has been dug up, but the MDC claims they can't find me. So my uh, lateral lines have not been replaced. Uh, and finally, the Blue Hills Civic uh, Association has been extremely uh, welcoming to me. They've extended a hand. They wanted me to be the first person to apply for the funding. But as I said, it's the humiliation that I just don't think I can go through again. And Sean, it's not humiliation from the past. I'm talking about when I was staying at the hotel, asking for help, the humiliation that people put me through was simply outrageous. Current day humiliation. And also due to the rain, I now have a sinkhole in the front, uh, in my front yard by my front stairs. The water continues to um, flood my basement. Comptroller Scanlon, what's your response to Sharon here? Well, again, my, my response is, you know, I, I would love, obviously, Miss Lewis and I know one another and, and we're in contact and and I, I've, you know, learned a lot from her story. And like I said, we're, we're hoping to amend the program to make sure that it is meeting the needs of residents like Miss Lewis. Um, and this has been a learning experience for us. Like I said, you know, it's been three months. Um, and there have been some challenges that I've identified. What's also true is that, you know, 87% of the people who have applied have been deemed eligible. 75% of that 87 have actually been inspected or have scheduled those inspections. And 121 people um, have been awarded $1.4 million. So um, while we're still learning and there are challenges that we have still yet to uh, you know, fix. Um, I, I think it's also been something that, you know, over a hundred people have gotten relief for the first time ever. And the, one of the first people that got that relief was the woman whose house we launched this program at. And so 
Um, it's still growing. We're still learning. But overall, I think we're finally getting relief in the hands of people who frankly thought that relief would never come. Right. And I've got two more quick, quick questions for you um, before we let you go. We got a breakdown from your office of the home and also business owners in Hartford who were approved and received funds so far. Can you give us an idea of whether or not are most of these recipients in the north end of Hartford? The legislature wrote the law that anybody in Hartford could apply for it. And so therefore, you know, we have gotten applications from all over the city. But the issue that the legislature was trying to solve by asking us to create this program was certainly in the predominantly in the North End and overwhelming percentage of the people who have been uh, both deemed eligible and awarded money so far are in the North End. And can you touch on whether, a fact, whether the fact that these homeowners have to live in Hartford has been a challenge so far? Um, the Legal Defense Fund recently sent a letter to the Connecticut Speaker of the House, Matt Ritter, outlining how to make this program more equitable. They said in the letter that currently there are businesses in Hartford that sustain damage that are unable to participate in the HFC program. Many of the businesses um, uh, many of the business owners in North End of Hartford, where a majority of the flooding and sewage issues arise, are Black and Latino. A comptroller, is there a way renters might be more explicitly included here? You know, how can you make that more accessible for them? Well, people who rent who have experienced damage can absolutely apply. And some of the people who have been awarded money are people who rent and they don't own their property. I think the thing that we hear about from perhaps the Legal Defense Fund and uh, some people in the community is that the business owners who maybe live in the surrounding towns, but not actually in Hartford where their businesses um, are not eligible. Um, that is true that they're not eligible right now. We've only had a handful of people actually apply um, that have been turned away for that reason. But what I have said publicly and what I would say publicly now is that those people should apply because in a way the application is somewhat like a needs assessment for us to figure out exactly how many businesses are owned in, in Hartford by people who do not live in Hartford. Um, and so because we still have four and a half million dollars in the initial tranche of money and people like Speaker Ritter and Senator McCrory have expressed uh, certainly an openness to to adding more if we need it. Um, we're asking people that are in that situation to make sure that they do apply. Comptroller Sean Scallon, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Dave, you've been following this conversation. We'll love your response to what the comptroller has to say so far. Well, what I've heard is there's uh, issues with especially business owners along Albany Avenue that um, many of them, while they are taxpayers in Hartford, don't live in Hartford. And they're not eligible. And I think that's a big uh, hole in the legislation that needs to be fixed. There's been several businesses that have frankly gone under because of the flooding issues. Um, and most of those people don't live in Hartford. Um, I think that's also true of the neighborhoods in the North End. Many of the people are renters. And frankly, I don't think a lot of people realize that they don't have to own the property to apply. Uh, People I've talked to, many of the landlords don't live in Hartford, and so they don't. The renters don't think that they're eligible. That it would have to be the landlord to apply. So I think that's a maybe that's just a communication problem. But um, I, I was out recently with the city council chairwoman who had some work done at her house, and she said basically 
there's probably 20, 25 houses on her street, and maybe four of them are owned by the people that actually live there. So I think that's another um, hole in the program that they need to try to address to try to get more people to apply. And Sharon, we'd love to get your thoughts here too about the business owners in the neighborhood. Do you have any thoughts there? Well, I'm, I've lived in the neighborhood my entire life. Uh, so I'm very familiar with many of the business owners. And I, I do believe that it is unfair for them not to be able to participate um, in this first round of funding. Hopefully, the Connecticut General Assembly will see fit to include them in the process as well, because you see, there are businesses that the community uses. And if you close down a hardware store, if you close down a grocery store or a restaurant, where the, where's the neighborhood gonna go? And here I wanna play a clip from Bridget Prince, who has been involved in the push for relief in the North End and who has also experienced flooding and the loss of invaluable personal items. Let's take a quick listen here. People live in their basements. Basements, you know, I mean, people work in their basements. There's life in people's basements. And for it to be dismissed and excused, um, the only conclusion now, besides politics, now the only thing that comes up is racism. Because, you know, you're still not moved by the fact that I was like, okay, well, this is happening. Somebody's, you know, there's raw sewage, which is causes all kind of toxic, um, toxicities and cancer and other kind of diseases. You're not moved by that. You know, you're not moved that as black people. What is it? Sharon, can you share your perspective on this push for attention? You know, what else can you do or what else can the organization do to, to push for more attention on this issue? Well, one of the things that we've done from the very beginning was the Connecticut Coalition has started a water justice campaign at the very beginning. And in that campaign, we went out as a team to the neighborhoods. It was us. It was uh, deep. Um, Edith Pistana, Doris Johnson, Graham Stevens from the Water Bureau. We had Ashley Stewart from the Green Bank. We had myself representing the insurance aspect. We had contractors there. And we explained to people just what they need to have happen and what was happening. Um, I think I mentioned to you on November 2nd, I was invited to testify before Congress on the relationship between climate change and insurance. For some reason, I'm the only person in America who has the experience of environmental justice, insurance, and reinsurance. So I testified on behalf of the Democrats. And it's amazing how we don't understand that this is a climate-related issue, and it doesn't, the word disaster is taken out of of our everyday um, jargon, because now it's replaced with event. You could have a light rain, you could have a heavy rain. You don't need a flood to cause all of these things. And uh, just as what happened to me, my my loss was uninsured. Imagine the, sh the, the series of emotions I went through from shock, anger, embarrassment, um, to disbelief that with 30 years of insurance experience, that I find myself uninsured. 
And I testified about how the uninsurance and the lack of insurance, the uh, the inadequate insurance, the disappearing coverages, one loss could put someone into bankruptcy and into poverty. And as you continue to hopefully move forward here, sharing, you know, what's what's next for you and for the Water Justice Initiative? Well, we're, we've been asked to go to Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Haven. Next is trying to get the funding to support all the people who we need to support us in this effort. Uh, what I'm finding that's so devastating to me is so many people who bring their insurance uh, policies to us are so underinsured don't have the coverage that they thought they had. So I'm doing a lot with helping them do that. But shortly after I testified in November, nationwide, we heard about all the insurance companies pulling out of the markets, restricting coverages. And um, one of the campaigns that we're starting is to try to get Connecticut to not allow the insurance companies to withdraw because that would add further devastation to folks who not only... uh, Uh, would not have insurance, but won't be able to finance their businesses and other things that they need to survive. Dave, with what Sharon just shared, is this similar to what you're hearing, especially in terms of insurance coverage and losses that people are taking to treat this issue? It's actually ironic that literally many of these insurance companies are, you know, their backyard is the north end of Hartford. Um, um, Flooding in general is a huge issue, um, not only here, but uh, most most time people think of the shoreline, right, That the, or a house falling into the ocean. Um, this is uh, an inner city area that has been um, uh, is just devastated by floods, as Sharon said, far more than 30, the 30 years I first mentioned. And um, it, it's going to be, hopefully, once some of these projects get done, um, some of that will stop, but the reality is the storms are getting worse. Uh, We just had one a couple of weeks ago where, you know, we had over two inches of rain in less than 24 hours, Um, and uh, uh, anybody who has flooding issues really does need to at least apply for funding here, Um, and again, I would say to Sharon, get in touch with the people at Blue Hills. Um, If you don't trust the state, um, I know they go door to door. They have a whole team that helps people fill out applications. You certainly, maybe you wouldn't get everything that you feel you should get, but you would certainly get something which is better than what you've been getting for the last 30 years, which is nothing. And Sharon, before we go to break, I want to ask you, any final thoughts you would like to share and and what do you hope our listeners take away from this conversation today? Well, I would like to ask uh, uh, Sean's controller Scanlon a question. Um, Is it really true that we would receive a W-9 if we receive um, funding from this source? And if it is true, what is the purpose of the W-9? Comptroller, I'm not sure if you are still on the line, if you can answer that question. If not, we can we can forward that, certainly. Well, if not, I can ask. I can go on to my second point go as far it. as what can there be is, done. Th- there is a 
uh, concern about the tax um, issue. Uh, Bridget's that, that's one of the things that Bridget uh, has brought brought up in her letter to um, to uh, Speaker Ritter. Um, I, I believe if you pay a contractor, or there is a tax implication to some of it that they would like to see addressed. Um, there, I, I think they want to model the program more after the Crumbling Foundations program that um, is still ongoing out in Eastern Connecticut, um, and that's one of the things that Bridget's put. I know pushing with uh, with uh, Speaker Ritter. And Sharon got about thirty seconds here. If you want to make your second point, real quick. Well, I just think that um, going forward, as far as app the application process and developing a procedure, they should talk to people who have been through this to get uh, real life experiences uh, so that they can develop an application that applies to everyone. And also, in addition to these grants, perhaps provide loans to people that are not mired down in red tape. Make it easy and simple for people. You've been listening to Sharon Lewis, who's a North End resident and the executive director for the CT Coalition for Environmental Justice. Thank you so much, Sharon, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You are also listening to Connecticut State Comptroller Sean Scallon. And you can also learn more about the Hartford Flood Compensation Program on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. We'll continue this conversation with Connecticut Mirror reporter Dave Altamari after a quick break. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to continue this conversation about the efforts to address systemic flooding and sewage issues in Hartford's North End is Dave Altamari, who's an investigative reporter for Connecticut Mirror. So, Dave, we know that both the Environmental uh, Protection Agency and the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection have oversight on the local water authority of the MDC or the Metropolitan District Commission of Connecticut that we mentioned earlier. We got an update from all three of those entities and James Chow, who is the Enforcement and Compliance Assurance Division Deputy Director for the EPA, told us that 11 of 12 planned construction projects will begin by the end of the year. Let's take a quick listen from him. In our opinion, this is a shared responsibility between the city and MDC. In other words, the city owns and maintains city streets, storm drains, catch basins. MDC owns and maintains the underground network of pipes. And EPA is working with the state and both of those entities to further clarify their respective roles, um, requirements in terms of frequency of street sweeping, frequency and putting in place a program to clean out catch basins. These are basic maintenance procedures that are critical uh, they're shared between both entities, and they should be easy to clarify. So again, we're working with both of the entities and the state to try to put in place an agreement between the two uh, entities, the city and NBC, to clarify those shared responsibilities. So Dave, we just heard from the EPA. We've got about two minutes here. Can you touch on the complexity of sort of clarifying the respective roles that each of these agencies that Chow alluded to here? Because I think it looks like there's a few Venn diagrams of oversight here between the EPA and DEEP over MDC, which is, again, the local water authority here. Right. And MDC um, 
is really, for the most part, the one that deals with the day-to-day issues with the pipes. I mean, and the reality is, as we talked about before, the pipes in the city are ancient. And so they need to, what most of these projects are going to do is uh, try to separate the, the water and sewage lines. And that is the biggest issue, like what, what Sharon was talking about. When, when she gets flooding, it's not just water. It's raw sewage that ends up in their basements, ruins everything. It's a health issue. Um, I, I think this has been going on for a long time, and nothing's been done about it. Um, the EPA has certainly shown a lot of interest relatively recently, uh, I think, frankly, because of the residents um, like Bridget and Sharon who have you know, taken their complaints out of the local level and went to the federal level. Um, so there is progress being made, but, you know, you're talking about replacing, in some instances, pipes that are well over 100 years old. Um, and you're talking about an area where, you know, the north end of Hartford, the, you know, there's the houses right on top of each other, and most of them are multiple, fa- multiple family houses. Um, so it's going to take some time. Um, my understanding was I think 11 of the 12 projects are at least already underway to some extent. Um, some people are getting, there are simple things you can do, like, uh, for example, install a sump pump. Um, I was at a, a, um, a, a residence home who uh, MDC came and, and put in a brand new sump pump, put in a couple of pipes to get the water out of the basement, and that's alleviated, for the most part, their flooding issues. So that's not, an, that's not a terribly expensive fix. It's something that can be done relatively quickly. Um, so I think some of that's also now being done by the MDC that was not being done before. Um, so I, I, it is slowly going to improve. The problem is you're in a race with, uh, with Mother Nature, and we get way more storms and way more worse storms than we used to get. Well, sounds like there's a slow but ongoing process here. Thank you so much. Uh, you've been listening to Dave Altamari, who's an investigative reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 